All right, guys, in this episode, I am joined by Molly Molshine. We recorded this virtually through the Anchor app because Molly is actually based in London. Uh, but prior to her moving to the UK, I was fortunate enough to get to work with Molly on this really cool project called Rape Jokes by Survivors. Uh, it was a night of comedy and a documentary and a whole thing around female and female identifying comics uh, telling jokes about their trauma. <laughs> and it was really cathartic and really empowering. And Molly and I bonded quickly. Um, we're both survivors of intimate partner violence. And we are a testament that women who go through those trenches together uh, are friends forever, uh, no matter the distance, no matter the circumstances. Um, but Molly is wonderful. She's super, she's super smart, super talented. Um, she's a writer, comic producer, podcast host. She hosts Diva Behavior, the podcast, and she co-hosts Us Weekly's Royally Us. Um, so Molly and I really get into it. We get into what it's like to be a domestic violence survivor and all the misconceptions around that and how those situations unfold in their occurrence. Uh, we unpack internet culture and what that's doing for body image and body positivity. Spoiler alert, it is not great. And of course, we touch on comedy. We are both stand-ups and we talk about how to accurately weave ethos into your comedy and how you talk about your trauma and the things you really want to touch on on stage without isolating your audience. It's not easy, but it is possible. Without further ado, Molly Molshine. Bad Women is a new podcast powered by Cat Call and hosted by yours truly, Brittany Brave. Cat Call is a platform promoting female leadership, progress, and camaraderie through original events and content. Follow along at We Are Cat Call on social media. I haven't seen you. We've actually only met in person once, correct? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was only one time. Yeah, it was a 2018, I believe. Um, and it was for the interview for Elle, um, for the press, for the rape jokes by Survivor comedy show. Yes. And that was yeah, like but it, my favorite, one of my favorite things I've ever written about. It was so great. And it was so awesome, obviously, meeting you and everything, too. Yeah, I, likewise. Likewise. I was about to say, like, it was a very quick and instant bond between us. Um, for, mm -hmm. for those listening, there is no bond like two women who have been through abusive bullshit. <laughs> it's an immediate, <laughs> quick, <laughs> quick... We're in it, sister. We're in, we're in it. It um, is like being in the Matrix. It is. <laughs> Everything seems different from then on in your life. Right. Exactly. Like, oh, so you're viewing life the way I am. Nobody else gets it. But you yeah. Um, I always say that too. It's always a quick way that I feel like women bond to in general is over like dating things. Like, I feel like that's a really quick way to like soften tension with a woman or like really bond with a girl is like to be like, the second you get into like love life and sex life, I feel like every girl is waiting to like, oh, and like yeah. unload. Just yeah. unload. Yeah. No pun intended. But I feel like a <laughs> good one. I yeah. feel like now that I'm older, I don't talk about sex stuff with my friends as much anymore. Do you, Am I the only one who's like that? Like when we were in high school, we talked about it all the time because we were, it was all new and we were like, oh my God, penises, this is crazy. But now I guess it's, it's old hat. So we just never talk about it anymore. We talk about dating and stuff, obviously, but I don't know. This just said Molly Molshine says that dicks are old hats. That's it. <laughs> Uh, they are old news that's it it's um, been a long lockdown way, it's been a long <laughs> trust me it's been a long lockdown um <laughs> that's also so funny just that entire vision of um you being in high school and uh you guys are like penises have you guys heard about penises yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> have you seen one yet they're they're all right like you know um <laughs> yeah I don't know I mean my friends and I we are still talking about it. I mean, I don't, you and I haven't caught up in a while. Like, I don't, I don't know your, your relationships that, I mean, I talk about sex all the time because I'm so single, it's painful. And I only have these like fleeting one-off flings and connections. So I feel like my friends and I are still very, very much so covering dicks. Um, that, or we're just regressing one or the other. No, but I think you're right. Maybe it is because I have a boyfriend. He's technically my domestic partner. We, uh, oh. yes, we are civil partners. We got a civil partnership in Gibraltar before the lockdown, which was what? insane. Yeah. We, so we went to, we went to Gibraltar because it's the only place in Europe that you can get a civil partnership with 24 hours notice. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we went. Do you know where Gibraltar is? It's this random peninsula on like the eastern tip of Spain. Oh, wow. I actually don't. I knew about like the, is the rock of Gibraltar yes. a thing? The, okay. I'm Yeah. And it's the whole thing. It's like the rock is there and quickie marriages are there. It's the funniest place I've ever <laughs> been in my life. We got a civil partnership and it was our civil partnership came free with lunch. They were like, oh, if you, <laughs> if you eat lunch in this restaurant, the civil partnership is free. It was hilarious. But so, yeah, he's he's like technically my husband under the eyes of the law. So maybe that's why I don't talk about it as much. You know, that makes me feel like I should start talking about it again. Definitely my friends who are single and out there on the apps, they are we I'll still talk peen with them for sure. So for sure. Yeah, Yeah, you get to like live your single girl spontaneity vicariously through them a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, no, for sure. Um, First off, that is. Congrats, A. Um, B, I think that's incredible. And I feel like Groupon was invented in Gibraltar. Like, it's that's incredible that it's like the capital of quickie marriages. Also, you can get a free lunch. Yes. Also, there's this cool rock. Uh, also, that is like, like the vibe of Gibraltar. It's very similar brand to Groupon. That's a perfect comparison like we went shopping because I needed something to wear because I I don't know I guess I just didn't have anything at home to wear so I was like oh I'll buy something down there and the stores were so weird and they had all these strange graphic t-shirts one of them just said therapy on it it just said therapy like five times please tell me that that's what you wore when you officiated this with your husband I should have I really yeah but I didn't but I didn't Mm -hmm. You're like, I wore it on the honeymoon. I know, no. I still call him my boyfriend too. Cause I'm like, partner, he's partner sounds so pretentious to me. What do you think about that? Like straight people who say partner. If I feel like it's kind of if I was to call him my partner, it's like I'm trying to sound more interesting than I am. I I see that. I definitely hear that. That it's um I, I think it was a term that at least socially got acclimated for 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 homosexual couples right and like mm. non-binary couple right like that's how it was like you know my partner if you don't want to necessarily say my boyfriend my girlfriend you know based on how you orient um so it does sound like I think sometimes sure like if two straight people say partner it can sound a little pretentious and a little like very woke like you're trying to be um but I will say I don't know like I mean I'm 30 and I'm having my own existential crisis with partnerships and intimacy so I'm, I'm partners. Like I, I am finding myself even using that word mm. a little bit more now. Cause then sometimes like I have my boyfriend, I'm like, I don't know. Should I be like looking for partner? Like what is the connotation? Yeah. Right? It is yeah. weird. Cause yeah. When I say boyfriend, I'm like, I have Botox. I shouldn't be saying boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> like that ship should have sailed, but these two things don't add up you're like yeah (laughs) that's so funny yeah I um that's that is really funny yeah I guess I mean I can look back at any guy I've been involved with over the last two years and I can be like were you boyfriend material or were you partner material like I mean I can I could separate them and they would they would mean different things Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but that brings me to like so I mean you and I are bonded obviously we're both survivors of, of domestic abuse and emotional abuse and, and all of that. And, yeah, just um, emotional abuse for me on my end. I just want to clarify so that I, yeah. But and I appreciate, you know, the, the clarification, but it's all, you know. Yeah, yeah, any, yeah. Yeah, any form of abuse. It's like, it's like, I always hear people that are like mental versus physical versus emotional versus this or like even sexual assault. And I'm always like, this is like just comparing tornadoes and hurricanes. A hundred percent. Like, like like the impact and the frequency or like the speed might be different, but like the, it's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's travesty. Um, But I had somebody say, you know, a good friend of mine had said this like years ago about when I exited my relationship, she's like, you're just never going to look at a, the world the same again. And then she was like, or like B definitely like partnerships or intimacy with people platonic or romantically. And Mm. I agree. And I see that for sure. Like just d- worldview, societal views, definitely dating. Um, so I guess I'm just like curious for you being in the same boat and having a similar experience. Like 
how was entering this partnership for you? Or how do you think Molly saw the world pre-abusive mm. relationship? And now Molly sees the world now post-abusive relationship. Wow, that's a great question. I would say before I realized I was in an emotionally abusive relationship, the big issue that got me into that situation, which obviously caveat, it didn't get me into it. Someone abusing me got me into it. It was nothing to do with me. Obviously. And an incredible important caveat yeah. I love that you just shared. That. Yeah. Yes, it's not that you did nothing. Abuse is controlling and manipulative for a reason. Right. I didn't <laughs> quote unquote right. accept it. It doesn't mean I wasn't a strong person. Everyone who knows me will tell you, you know, I like, you know it too, because the same is true for you. But like, I saw the good in people a little bit too much where mm. that was part of my issue and part of how I would justify certain things to myself and be like, there's no possible way that someone who is so nice to me sometimes would want to hurt me. There's no way that that could possibly be the case. And I finally realized that that wasn't true. And I finally realized kind of what I, I just realized that some people were crappy, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, it, and it, and that is such an important thing because now I can look at the current, even political situation and be like, no, some of these people are just crappy. Some of these people just want to cause harm to other people. Mm -hmm. So that was a big change with it. But as far as my boyfriend now, I mean, honestly, I got really lucky because he is just the sweetest person alive. And I was mm -hmm. terrified to get into another relationship. I did not want to at all. I didn't give him my number for a month after I met him because I knew that I was going to really like him. I knew it could become a boyfriend, girlfriend situation. And I was just like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing this again. I need to get my head on straight. Um, mm -hmm. And then I went on mm -hmm. a really shitty date and I was like, fuck it. I'll give him my number. <laughs> Comparatively. Yeah. You were like, actually, I need to move in on this. This is a good yeah, opportunity. I was just like, yeah. yeah, exactly. I was like, no, there, I'm not going to find myself through. I don't know. I think that's a probably bad way of looking at it, but I just felt like mm -mm. if there's a nice guy who is interested in me, who is a genuinely good person. Um, I think it's, I was like, I'm just going to go for it. And I'm so glad I did because, you know, he's the best. Now, and now you, you're a civil, you're in a civil partnership. Mm -hmm. Um, you, from, according to Travolter yes, and, yes. and you have a, a shirt that says therapy and your life is unfolding before you're going to be on TV, <laughs> everything. Like, I mean, I mean, good choices were made here. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> of course. Um, no, um, you you touched on first off so many, so many things. And as you know, this is my favorite topic. Yeah. I love talking about this. It's not talked about enough, and it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Number one is wholly agree with you that we need to stop telling people who are in an abusive relationship or in an abusive situation. We need to reframe the question from how do you let this happen. Or really you, mm. I can't believe you would end up in this because it's exactly what you said. It is abuse for a reason because the power dynamic between two people is grossly uneven. And if, if it were any different, it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be abuse, mm. right? Like it, you know, so it's, it's not, it's not ending up in a situation. I didn't trip and fucking fall into an abusive man for three years. Like I, fell in love with a human being and then in the depths and intimacy of the relationship uncovered that they were in fact abusive mm -hmm. because, you know, we hurt the people closest to us. Um, I also see too the wanting to see the good, you know, and I think the flip side of it, if I were to still be any part of an optimist is I think that we do do that as human beings. And maybe this is the beautiful side of it is that maybe we all are actually walking around really, truly trying to see the best in everybody and really, truly trying to like give the benefit of the doubt and want to see things work out. And then, and that's strength. That takes a lot of strength. That takes a lot of grace. You have to leave a lot of room for people's baggage and, and, and shortcomings and everything in between. Um, but then, yeah, it's, that's where that fine line comes in. Mm. Like I, I just recently had, I was talking to a friend about a situation with a guy and she put it into perspective where I was like, 
I don't like this that he did or said or whatever. I was like, it was like a while ago actually now. And she was like, I was like, but I see that he can be such a good person. And I've seen these moments and I know he wants to be. And I've seen, and he said this, and he's been able to do that. And I see what he really wants to be, but I think he's in a weird place. And she just illuminated it to me where she was like, but didn't you say the same thing with your ex? Mm. Like, it's the exact same thing that kept you in that for three years. Like, even if there isn't physical abuse right now with this guy, it was that potential to see light in him. And that, like, sometimes he's really good. She goes, wasn't that what BJ was? Like, sometimes he was really good. And I was like, oh, Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's a whole thing too. And I think, you know, I, and what am I hope always for like abuse victims and survivors is that you don't, you don't lose inherently that trait that you still stay, like you still have a capacity to unconditionally love because mm-hmm. that's your, you're not the problem. That's beautiful that you can do that. You just, I guess, need to vet or protect yourself more. I don't yeah. Know. I, yeah. I think something I said to myself when I started dating, again, after that relationship was, I was like, if someone says anything that hurts my feelings in any way, I'm going to honor the fact that my feelings are hurt and not allow that person to talk me into feeling like it's my fault or I have no sense of humor or I'm being oversensitive. That was like a huge Mm -hmm. thing for me to just say, if like you learn it when you're in kindergarten. If you hurt someone's feelings and they tell you that it hurt them, you say sorry. And if you encounter someone who can't say sorry, that's like a giant red flag. And I guess that's what I learned from that. And that, yeah. yeah. The golden rule. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very, um, that's very, very true that I think, um, and that is definitely an abusive tendency that your feelings get discounted and it's a way that an abuser can feel okay and condone and justify their own behavior. Cause there's always that like crazy sociopathic part of them that is anticipating consequences for their actions. So then when you react negatively, rightfully so to their hurtful words or their hurtful behavior, um, then all of a sudden they're trying to, it's gaslighting Mm -hmm. too. It's, it's, no, you're just sensitive. No, you didn't realize it was a joke. No, whatever. And it's like, you know, you know, you can't deny your own feelings when it, when it comes to that. And that's where I think it becomes like a slow drip and a slippery slope. A little yeah. Bit. And my ex told me one of the worst things, he, <laughs> this is going to sound stupid because it's going to sound like it's not even that bad. It's not one of the worst things he said. It's one of the worst things he said in a lighthearted way that was, that then turned into an argument. He was like, Oh, you know what? When you have your eyebrows drawn on, you're like an eight. But whenever you wash your face and your eyebrows aren't drawn on anymore, you're like a five or a six. Oh, my fucking God. And I was like, what? I was like, what did you just say to me? And he's like, what? Why? Like, of course, you know that. Otherwise, you wouldn't draw them on. And it became this thing where I was like, I can't believe you said that. And he was like, well, I can't believe that you're like upset that I'm saying that. So I was like, holy shit. Like, I should have just left at that point. But I was so in that cycle, you know, where I was like, what he says is right. And he knows how to convince me of that. Absolutely. And it's a a belief that you're that you're holding. It's like this agreement that you have with yourself that you, you just really think that you are the problem in the relationship. And that's because you're being conditioned Mm -hmm. to think that, but that's so mean and terrible and petty. And like, like off, like I, I had that. I remember I dated a guy in college where, um, I'm, I, I probably blocked it out, but obviously we were like intimate and sleeping together. And at some point he said something like, well, what boots? (gasps) What a dick. Yeah. And it was like, and like made fun of like my, listen, I'm president of the itty bitty titty committee and I'm proud of it today. Like I love these little a cops. Mm -hmm. Like I am about them. And then thank you for this dickhead for, for making me feel like shit about it. Um, to where now I have no choice, but to own the shit out of it because like, I'm like, I'm never going to feel that way ever again, but I will never, I will like never, ever forget him saying that and I remembered in that moment I completely shut down like I felt like the color drained from my face my tears were welling in my eyes like especially like you know as a woman like and I was and he and then again he was again it was like just take a joke god and 
or like, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. And then he couldn't figure out why that night, like, I wasn't in the mood to fuck. And I was like, I, well, it's kind of weird being naked around you now. Like, yeah. It's like, God, what a dick. Yeah. Don't you also feel like during that time period, boobs were like the thing? And if you, if someone questioned whether you had boobs or not, it was like your life is over. And I feel like it's now gotten a little bit better but now it's like you have to have a big butt but at least maybe the boob pressure's off a little bit does that make sense the boob pr- the boob pressure is very is very off and i yeah let's get into this because the standards and what we expect from like the female body have evolved so much over time i actually think i saw like an article or an infographic or whatever on this too about how like what the 1950s liked like slender tiny waist and hips mm-hmm. um but then like the 80s loved their their boobies. Like the 80s loved like voluptuous breasts. And then like the 90s, it was about like the tight tummy. And then like the early millennium, it was definitely the fat ass and like whatever it was. And I mean, I will say, I think today, I think like, I don't think there's the glorification of boobs is a thing anymore. I think yeah. that like sexual fluidity is so there and there's so many different ways that we're identifying and being sexual and and beauty is 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 being flipped on its head that I it doesn't feel that way anymore as much I think like I I think that you know being tiny petite and athletic is just as much as being like voluptuous Mm -hmm. and 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 curvaceous as well too yeah Yeah, I wonder how it is for like teenagers now because that's how it was when I was a teenager that was when people said the things that really just like have me too. Into, mm-hmm. They burrow into your head and they will never get out. It's like brain worms. Like shit the yeah. boys would say to you about your body. It was just like so insane. And I wonder if that is, I mean, it's just teenagers, right? Like they, I wonder if that's changed. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I wonder too. And I think the thing that really scares me is that teenagers have all this access to social media and like Facetune and Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And, and things like that. And, um, you know what, maybe they're, maybe they're evading some of the bullying because they're, they, they all seem to be existing so much more digitally than they are IRL with each other. Yeah, so, but the thing, like they, they don't have you, sex anymore. The no. Teen sex rate <laughs> and teen pregnancy rate is plummeting because they don't ever yeah. actually meet up with each other, like face to face. They're all just like texting. It's so interesting. It is so interesting. And I think, um, I think it's going to cause long-term damage. I mean, I don't know if you saw that documentary, the social. Yeah. That was so yeah, crazy. And, and how it was so crazy and how they, you know, they talked about how, yeah, like to, you're a thousand percent, right? Like these teenagers are not having intimate romantic connections with each other. They're not having sex. They're just literally existing on each other's phones, but then that's going to cause long-term damage because they will eventually have to exist and seek that interpersonal connection in the real mm-hmm. world. And then it's like, they're going to really have to reconcile who it is that they're presenting themselves as on the, on the internet versus how they're presenting themselves on you know, in, in real life. Yeah. They're going to be so scared. And I already saw it with like younger girls I worked with, like even a few years ago, they would just, they didn't know how to like take initiative. This is a huge, um, generalization obviously. And it wasn't everyone because most, like most of them were so good and, you know, but there would be some that would be these whizzes at, using Instagram and they would have these incredibly curated, gorgeous pages, but then they didn't know how to Google something. And I was like, Whoa, what? And they, it was because they weren't used to using the internet in a way that's seeking something. It all just is presented to them. So it was just this crazy dichotomy in the way that like people our age are accustomed to using the internet versus people who are even just 10 years younger. Mm. I am. That's, that is insane. And I see it absolutely too. I had this thought the other day that I feel like even all of us, like even, you know, I guess that would be like Gen Z, but even mm-hmm. us as like millennials, I think the most of us are really conducting day-to-day life on our phones and on the internet. And it, it seems like it, I mean, statistically speaking, if that's where you're spending all of your time and attention, and if that's where you're gathering and making all of your perceptions and your conclusions, then for the most part, you're, especially during a quarantine, you are living on the internet 
and real life was secondary. Yeah. So like it, it actually was, whereas, whereas beforehand it was, oh, okay, I'm going out to dinner with a group of my girlfriends. I'm going to put my phone away because this is real life. And I'm checking out of that. Like now it's like, your like your home base became the internet and became social media which is you know the thing that freaked me out the most in that documentary that i haven't been able to stop thinking about there was this Mm. one little throwaway line that i kind of wish they delved into more but they were like people are basing their entire personality on this algorithm and i was like holy shit how much of Mm -hmm. my personality how much of my comedic material that I use, how much of my appearance is being dictated by what I subconsciously think will perform well on this algorithm. Like I had, like, obviously I knew that that was going on and I knew that I was doing that, but it really made me think even more like, holy shit, what am I making any choices for myself? Right. Or am I, or am I actually subconsciously on a level that I'm maybe not even always aware because I'm so ingrained, so ingrained in me making decisions based off of what it is I can present in this digital social sphere. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. And even as a comedian, you're right. Like if it's working on here, am I honing my comedic voice based on what's working on Twitter and Instagram and on the internet, or am I finding it genuinely on stage or in day-to-day interactions? Right. Like, like, where does that ratio fall? And I'm kind of afraid that, like, the generation that's younger than us isn't thinking critically. Like, I think us as millennials are just now escaping it. Like, we're just now, like, we're not quite lost. Like, we can critically analyze it and catch ourselves. There's a little bit of a self-awareness. But I think the generation after us, I, I think it is a little too far gone yeah. for them. Like, I think that they really think that this is where they need to be performing and this is what reality is and this is where they need to be goal setting. And because you can see it because like all these kids are like kind of dead. Like, like, like it's, it's, it's hard to like have a conversation with a preteen right now. And because they, they don't care. They're just, they're waiting for when, when they need to check back into Snapchat to figure out what's going on over there. Yeah, yeah. It's such a bummer. Do you find, do you have a hard time sort of shifting your comedy stuff online? Cause you've been performing a lot in New York though. Right. But you're not in New York. Anymore. Yeah. I, no, I'm not. I'm in Miami currently right now. Um, I do. I actually often find that anything that works online doesn't work on stage. Me too. <laughs> and like the stuff yeah. I do on stage doesn't work online because it, it requires, it relies so much on the context and my vibe on stage. Like if I just typed out my jokes that I say on stage and tweeted them, it would not only flop, but it would get me in so much trouble. Like, right. <laughs> because like my closer, like one of my favorite closers is a joke about uh, how weird I find it when, when parents post like pictures of their kids on Instagram in the bathtub and kind of sexualize them. And it works really (laughs) well as a closer. But if I was to type that and tweet it, I would be, Oh, you could be QAnon all over my timeline. Like it would, (laughs) I could never make a joke about that. And I'm like, that's my, that's what I do. I do like edgy humor. So I don't really know how to translate that to Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, no. And um, I I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, a lot of anything that I ever really do on stage, I have never posted online. And I even haven't even posted clips of it, too, because I, 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 I agree with you. It's in it's in the nuances and in the vibes and in the camaraderie that we're really able to like bond with artists and comedians and just people, right? Like, it's like, it's all of that stuff that's a part of building social and creative intelligence. Like, you can hear what somebody says, but it's really in like the nonverbal communication that you get, like the that, that you get the gist of what it is they're they're trying to get across. And it's absolutely as a comedian with that. Like a lot of my bits too, I feel like I'd be canceled immediately if I put any of them on Instagram mm-hmm. or Twitter. Because if if you don't really know me in person, they're absolutely, you can read that and decipher it in any possible yeah. time. Also, you, you can put your context yeah. on it. Yeah. Also, yeah. like there's, oh yeah, side note, there's, I just love this thing that Bill Burr says in, I think it's in Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, where he's like, whenever I say something, it goes in your head and gets cut with your childhood, and then you spit it back out as whatever you thought it was, and I think that's so true. 
It's yeah. so true. It's so true. It's the same way. I mean, even on a micro level that we've all talked about, like how text messages, like it's like, well, you can only assume so much yeah. tone through this because you are always, always, always going to hear it. You're only bouncing it off of the walls of your own head. So you're always going to hear it in the tone that in the filter that your head yeah. is currently in. So, and, and whatever your head space is. And yeah. when you're performing, at a show, whether it's at a club or a bar or wherever, everyone knows it's a comedy club. So they are ready for jokes. They know that you're jo- well, most of them know you're joking. Obviously, some people don't, but but when you're on Twitter or Instagram, you're competing also with the news, people's family photos, people's opinions on other stuff, like charity fundraising shit. You're just you're in this space where there's so many different things going on. So even to have your tweet or your post be seen as a joke, it has to automatically have this higher level of silliness, I think, than what you can get away with on stage. Does that make sense? It, I wholly agree. I think it totally makes sense. And it's, um, I actually always find that the things that perform the best on Twitter are things that I'm like, I gave like 2% of mental mm-hmm. energy to this. <laughs> like, like, I think it's like ridiculous and frivolous and it's so stream of consciousness. And it's like, I wouldn't even consider it to be like my wittiest, funniest thing at all. It's just, it's actually kind of unhinged. Like to your point, like it's like yeah. silly. It's so, it's so like ridiculous. And that's what ends up taking off. Um, and yeah. And also too, like, it's like, you're, you're so right. Like within the context of a comedy club. And this is why I, I always try to have comedians backs and you have to protect comedians. Cause it's like, if you willingly went to a comedy club or a comedy show and then you got offended and you weren't even willing to find the sense of humor and what was presented to you, yeah. tough shit. Like you're at a comedy club. Like that's, you know what you're signing up for. You know, the environment, the conditions and the context. Whereas with the internet, exactly to your point, everyone uses the internet differently. I use it differently than my mother does. I I'm on the internet for different reasons. than my mother is different reasons than my next door neighbor is. So yeah, if you're someone who uses the internet and can't even fathom that comedians and porn stars or people would be using the internet to advance their career or their medium, then you're going to come across something I say and be like, what yeah. the fuck? And not even realize that it's like, it's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's in jest. Yeah. How do you balance like being a feminist and speaking out about women's issues with doing comedy? Because this is something obviously that I'm always thinking about too. Yeah, it's hard. And it's um, because you never want to write like, you know, ostracize or anybody or, 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 you know, cut people out of your audience or make people feel uncomfortable. Um, I think uh, I think entirely just like I, I think a lot of the being a feminist and doing comedy comes in the actions and not even the words and just in like booking other women and supporting other women and also just inherently you know holding your own and being strong and having boundaries in a still kind of predominantly mm-hmm. boys club so I think that's already like pretty inherently feminist um and I don't I don't it always is very frustrating to me whenever they say like, well, women always talk about sex and women always talk about their vaginas and women always talk about dating. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to always talk about whatever it is that is autobiographical Mm. to me. So you're right. I don't write a lot of jokes about having a dick because I don't (laughs) have one, you know, like, so I don't even know if it's like, I, I, and I don't know if I become feminist Brittany. I think that's why like cat call hasn't really dabbled in like, all female comedy. I think I'd like to keep comedy to Brittany. Mm-hmm. Brittany's a comedian and um, have a lot of bits about the female experience and being a woman. But I, I think I try to stay a little more neutral mm-hmm. in that sense. And then when I want to really get raw, raw for my girls, I go to cat call and use yeah, that, that makes sense for, for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I you? feel like I learned a lot from Amy Schumer's career trajectory with that because I thought her first comedy album cutting was hilarious. I thought it was, yeah, it's so well written. Yeah. Just so well crafted. I loved her show. Then I felt like people started hailing her as this feminist hero and she started doing things that were more and more overtly feminist and a lot of it worked, but then some of it started to not work. And I think I, what I learned from that was you can't have an 
ethos shape your art. Like it's okay to have your mm. output be informed by your beliefs, but once you're passing every single bit through the feminist filter, I think it starts to hurt the final product, you know? I do. I think so. Yeah. Too. Like, and yeah. now, I mean, I think Amy Schumer has come also like she got so famous so fast that she would have had some sort of backlash no matter what. And I think now she's in an incredible place. I loved her last special. I thought it was amazing. I'm not like, yeah, I did too. Yeah, I like I'm really not, criti impressed. not criticizing really, really. her at all because I love her, but just like from seeing the chatter around her and seeing how people were reacting, that was kind of what I like took away from that. So now I, I try to, talk about things that are a little bit uncomfortable from a feminist perspective, just because I'm like, I don't want to have a third rail that I can't touch because I also am a feminist, you know? I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. And it's, it's like, yes, like it would always be the driving force and the inspiration behind the things I choose to talk about on stage. And maybe that's enough. Maybe I don't need to explicitly shove it down people's throats. I think the fact that I'm even deciding to talk about it on stage or that it's making me feel so inclined to produce comedy about it already kind of communicates without communicating that like, this is, this is what my political mm -hmm. belief is, or this is how I feel about women. If that yeah. makes any sense. Like the fact that I even talk about sexual assault on stage, I think you can kind of already. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. I mean, it's, we need more like inclusivity and I would never, I would never want my crowd to be all female, all male, all straight, all gay, all any, like I would want everybody in my room to, to find a moment in my act that they can really like yeah. resonate with. Um, that's the only drawback I feel for Hannah Gadsby, who again, I think did important mm -hmm. work and her special was, you know, but that's a, that's something that I see that I'm like, I think it leaned a little bit more towards political statements. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting because I think outside of the U.S., I mean, this is a whole other conversation, comedy outside of the U.S., but a lot of comedy that I've seen, it it it's more about a one man or one woman show a lot of the time. It's not joke, 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 joke. It's like a narrative arc and a beginning, middle and end because that's what performs well at things like Edinburgh Fringe. So I think that's mm -hmm. part of why, what was it called again? Doris? What the fuck was it called? Uh, <laughs> Nanette. I don't know. <laughs> um, and Nanette. Yeah. <laughs> I think Molly has inside scoop of what special number two is going to be called. Doris. That's what it is. Yeah. Do you know I believed you too when you were like Doris? I was like, that's probably it. That sounds it's the same genre of name as Nanette, I guess. It Nanette is. Nanette. Yeah. Nanette sounds like a, a spinoff yeah. of the nanny. Like I don't. But yeah. yeah like yeah. a lot of, a lot of comedy outside of the U S is like that. So I think that coming from, like coming to London from New York was really crazy to see how different a lot of the stuff is. And I don't know. I think that was also a big part of it too. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I was actually about to ask you about how, how comedy, how comedy compares. I mean, I think, I think to me that probably adds up just because I can, I can already see that the American attention span is pretty pathetic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um on, on anything you know and like uh on trends on gossip on cancel culture and definitely in the micro moments of a comedy set like people are like here and there mm -hmm. and gone um so yeah I am curious about how like have you felt like as if certain topics do better in the U.S. than than within in the U.K. or like you know how does that I've definitely had to you? tailor certain things differently some things don't work I had a whole bit about why it's not fair to call women gold diggers and gold diggers are misunderstood and it just flops here it was like something that always did well in the U.S. and here it's just not a thing and I I don't know why I guess because they don't really have this concept of shaming women for quote unquote marrying up. But I, I just don't know. I am still trying to figure out why it doesn't work. But yeah, there are some things that work, some things that don't. London in general is very alty. Like I definitely have um, gotten the ah response on a lot of stuff here. Whereas when I leave London, they will laugh at anything. They don't give a shit. So 
Mm, yeah, like the London crowds a lot of the time are a little bit more sensitive than I thought they would be. They're they're like more Brooklyn crowds. That's interesting. Okay, so a little bit more, maybe not high highbrow, but a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah. Correct, Whereas people in the north and Scotland, they are. I mean, Scottish people are for my money the funniest people alive they are like nothing is sacred they will laugh at absolutely anything people in like northern ireland also i've because my boyfriend's from belfast so i've been to some shows there like but people in london are more um you know just the silly like there's a lot of character work that people do in london it's a theater Mm -hmm. uh town in way more so than New York is like in New York obviously we have Broadway which is incredible and there's off Broadway but there's a big ecosystem in London of like small small theater companies and people working their way up with things like scratch nights is what what they call it where like people bring in their plays and read them they just there's just more of a thing of that here so it's kind it's kind of like how in LA people do more character work because there's so much TV I guess I don't know yeah, and I think the pacing of a place would would affect that too. It's I think that's a little bit of my 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 theory as well. Not that I mean, obviously London's massive, um, but I I feel like it. I people have more of a patience to see a performer in mm-hmm. London. It seems like really unpack a character or really show you a premise rather than tell you a premise and like you know walk you through a body of a body of art whereas I feel like you know I've always felt this way about New York comedy um New York comedy very much so subscribes to that like laugh every seven seconds get get it however you can so I think sometimes um a lot of comedy in New York if I were to like constructive criticize constructively criticize is like edgy for the sake of being Mm. edgy dirty for the sake of being dirty um and I I think that is one that's that's how you survive the club circuit in New York because New York in general nobody gives a shit about anything and and the attention span is really bad it's why dating there Mm -hmm. is so impossible there's always another option there's always something else to do so obviously if comedy is a direct reflection of how people behave in society then clearly if you're a comedian you're gonna have to keep the same pace where it's just that didn't land keep going keep going keep going beat them over the head with it beat them say whatever you get them and then in, in that, you don't really have the room to really nurture and milk a character. You just have to go straight for the dirty, edgy crowd work. Get oh, my it, God. You know, yeah. go my for first, the jugular. My first show yeah. that I did over here two years ago, I was – I forget what I was talking about, but it just wasn't hitting. So I did that. I went harder and harder and got louder and louder and more and more edgy. And it just never brought them back around. And I was like, oh, my God, what the fuck? This is crazy. When got off stage, yeah. there was another American comic and she was like, yeah, you have to, with these people, you have to go quieter when something is bombing or like if something's not doing well, you actually have to pull back and like try to get them to come back another way. And I was like, oh my God, that's going to be so hard for me to get used to. It's literally like taking a pet and like trying to get a pet to take its heartworm medicine. Yeah, I British feel. people like, are like cats. Or like British trying- people are literally, especially like people in the South, people in London who are a little more like, you know, hoity-toity are like cats. You you have to like slowly get them to approach you. <laughs> yeah, you have to play the game. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um. Yeah, and it's interesting, and it's like, you know, and I, I know there's a lot of conversation about, like, how comedy is going to be shaped after quarantine or, or after everything, and I mean, obviously, the inner workings of the industry are going to be different, but, I mean, this has always been an art form that has mm-hmm. evolved, you know, this has always been an art form that if it is a direct reflection of society and politics and what matters to people, then it's, comedy doesn't look the same two nights in a row, mm-hmm. so... That's also kind of interesting, too. Yeah. Um, well, Molly, this was amazing. Um, we covered cancel culture. We covered um, body positivity. We covered domestic abuse. And we covered comedy. And we covered your civil, your civil know, partnership. That was, All that was in a scoop. One. I've never even <laughs> posted it on Instagram. I, have, I was going to say, I was like, 
I miss this. I mean, the algorithm loves to show me the engagements and the weddings and the civil, civil officiations and, and everything. So, um, what did you guys just do this for? Like, you were like, let's do it. Like, let's just, why well, not? Or what was immigration was a factor for sure in terms of the okay. timing of it. And we do want to have like a normal wedding at some point. So we were like, and our families are both like super Catholic. So, I mean, not super Catholic, some more Catholic than others, but we were just like, if we posted this picture, everyone's going to either think I'm pregnant or they're going to freak out that they weren't invited. Like we were just like, we have to just not, this is just a non thing. So we weren't even going to tell like my extended family. And then my mom told them, of course, three seconds after it happened, she sent them 10 photos and everyone, so that everyone would know. I was like, oh my God, what the fuck? But yeah you're like mom the whole reason i was trying to do this is to avoid a, a yeah, war within exactly. the family but okay sure yeah. here we go so yeah. so yeah we're basically um yeah you know and then the freaking pandemic happened so i'm like when are we ever gonna get real married when will it ever happen but also i'm glad that we weren't what we weren't having to figure that out like over the past six months you know that would have been yeah it's stressful yeah it's um yeah it's, you know, I think everybody, this pandemic has made everybody like reroute in so many, but that's the one thing it's like, what I say today, I said earlier today, and it's definitely not the politically correct or accurate way to describe it, but it's almost like leveled the playing field, mm. this pandemic. That's not the right way, but I think, you know what I'm getting at. We're like, everybody has yeah. to modify in, in some way, shape or form. Like nobody's plans went, at, you know, nobody's coming out of this year, like everything went exactly as planned for me. I mean, maybe Jeff, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, maybe him, but yeah. Or, um, yeah. So it's, I mean, that, that's, that's so true, but I mean, I love that. And I love that you guys are, are, are on the track to that. And it's always really happy for me to ever, to always hear a domestic violence survivor, find themselves in a happy, healthy, secure partnership and relationship. Yes. That's what we want. We want to come out of the other side. Yeah. I think it was like the luck of the draw, honestly. (laughs) So what did you say? Sorry. I just got really lucky meeting someone who was really awesome. Literally, I did no work on myself. I sh- probably should have done more. No, you absolutely <laughs> did. And you are, are fucking awesome. And I'm sure every listener agrees as well. Oh, so, I mean, it's it sounds like it's very much so a partnership of equals. So that's and that's what everyone loves to see. So, yeah, it's great. Um, so Molly, I've been closing these, I closed all the IG lives with this and I love to close every episode of bad woman with, um, our guest leaving women one piece of advice and it could be anything. Usually I, you know, if it's, it's usually, I try to encourage people to share a piece of advice that they've carried with them throughout their whole life, whether it's about work or love. Um, so if you have any mantras that you would want to pass on to listeners, um, Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. I know it's a. Everyone's always like, "What the fuck?" I'm like, "I know." <laughs> I just it's, thought of one today because I was listening to Bethany Frankel's podcast, and she said one, but now I can't it. remember what it was. But what I think mine is, and it's something that I'm constantly trying to apply to myself, is just finish stuff and put it out there no matter what it is that you want to do, because even if you feel stupid, even if you feel like no one's going to listen to it or no one's going to look at it or no one's going to like it, it's you're still building something and eventually it will hit where it needs to hit. So it's like, even when I was working in magazines, if I got a two applicants and one of them went to Columbia Journalism School but had never done anything outside of school in her life. And the other one has been waitressing for her entire like teen years. And she has her own fashion blog. Like I would pick the one with the blog any day because it's like you're finishing something and putting it out there. And it just proves that you have a level of initiative that like most people don't. And whenever I apply that to myself, it always leads to something. Like whenever I put something out there that feels like a risk, like nine out of 10 times, it'll lead to a job or a connection or something that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So does that make sense? It absolutely does. I think that's great advice because I think as a creative, it's we obviously thanks, thanks to the blessing and the curse of the internet, which we covered, you know, at length today, it's, you know, there have been people who have succeeded with these shot in the dark, shot in the pan, things Mm -hmm. um and I think that can make any other kind of creative be it a comedian writer whatever whatever it is you're creating and making 
feel a little discouraged if right away you're not immediately hit with praise and success and something takes off and goes viral. So yeah, I think that's super, super important to just keep going and mm-hmm. keep creating. And as much as it is important for your stuff to be received by an audience, because I mean, we all want people to connect with our art. You have to separate yourself from it a little bit too. And you have to just like believe in what it is you're doing. And like how you said, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Kind of thing. That's also the conversation I have to have with myself all day, every day, because I'm a Pisces rising. So I <laughs> absorb people's shit all day long. And like this morning, I looked at my phone right when I woke up, which I never try. I try to never do, but I did. And like three things in a row were other people's podcasts that are doing amazing. And I was like, what are you fucking kidding me? Like this person just released their podcast and it's on like the top 10 chart. This person did this, this person did that. Why isn't mine going like as big as I want it to go. What am I doing wrong? Blah, 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 blah. And then I just have to be like, stop. That has nothing to do with me. Like, I just have Mm. to keep doing it. Yeah. It's so hard not to be like that. Yeah, it is, of course. And it's, yeah, the the comparison game is, and everybody falls prey to it and everybody, it affects, it affects everybody. Um, But the, yeah, and it's like always reminding yourself that it's like, what is the rush? I am the one superimposing the rush onto Mm -hmm. this. So, and just because somebody, I always remind myself of this with comedy, I'm like, just because somebody else has a win doesn't mean you're not capable of it or that your win isn't around, around the corner. And, you know, and, and who knows mm-hmm. what it looks like. Some of the best things that I feel like I've had happen in my career, I never anticipated happening. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm like, I, like, you know, I never thought I'd be published in this or I never thought I'd get the opportunity to perform here. And like, that wasn't even on my list of goals. Okay. You know, um, but that's, that's great advice for, I think, you know, all creatives and entrepreneurs to just like keep doing it, keep making it and keep staying true to yourself. And like, you know, it'll, it'll happen for sure. Yeah. I just have to follow it myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's always, that is always the, the age old uh, caveat with, with advice all the yeah. time. I'm like, yeah. We're always like, well, if I can only follow this myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of a mess when it comes to technology, so Anchor has saved my life. This episode of Bad Women and all of the episodes of Bad Women are powered by Anchor.fm. Let me break this down for you. If you've got a mobile device, that's an iPhone, an iPad, a tablet, a beeper, a pager, a Tamagotchi, a life alert monitor, whatever it is, you can record straight from there. You upload it, it's easier than ever to edit and produce, and then Anchor goes ahead and distributes this bad boy for you. That's right. It puts it out there on Apple, on Spotify, everywhere podcasts dwell, and the best part is you can even make money. Yes, money. You can make some serious green from recording with Anchor and you don't even need any minimum listenership. So if you've got a dream to be a podcast host and producer, your friends are going to be like, oh God, not another one. But you know what? The world needs to hear what you have to say. So get up, get started on anchor.fm and make those dreams come true, baby. We're waiting. I'll tune in. I promise. 